This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to the Media Rumble Sessions. Thank you the organizers for choosing uh, somebody from the Himalayas for the Indo-Pacific dialogue and I certainly was at sea in the beginning when I got to see what I had to moderate uh, or rather say I was in the ocean. So I wrote to some of you, some of you responded. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, and uh, Garima, for your Twitter thread, uh, I picked up a lot from your Twitter thread to what was, and also Vice Admiral for talking to me today. Uh, so it's interesting because for me as a, as a journalist, uh, you know, uh, this uh, entire Indo-Pacific has been a pot boiler of sorts. Uh, it was, it is, and I guess it will continue to be in future too. Marked by two significant areas, one is security, the other, of course, uh, being, uh, you know, uh, economic policy. So from here on, where does it go? What is India's role and how will it shape up uh, with what's happening in Europe and how they are viewing their policies right now? Uh, we're going to take this dialogue forward. Uh, before that, I'd like to invite all my panelists for their opening remarks. So I guess uh, that will be about three to four minutes uh, less than three, uh, you know, if you can keep it that way. At first, uh, invite uh, Vice Admiral Chauhan uh, for your opening remarks, sir. Thank you very much uh, to the organizers and uh, thank you to Konrad Adenauer Stiftung as well. And uh, thank you, Karma, for, those, um, for the opportunity to kick off the session. So let me, uh, let me do so by trying to introduce a new animal into the room, and that is the concept of strategic geography. So. Lots of people uh, in the Trumpesque uh, era felt that uh, the Indo-Pacific was in and of itself a strategy. Uh, India doesn't look at it this way. India looks at the Indo-Pacific as a strategic geography within which there are many strategies. Most of them are collaborative or cooperative, and some of them, I suppose, could be competitive. So what is this business of strategic geography and how, and how on earth does it differ from real geography is quite an important uh, opening sort of um, bracketing of the, of, the, of the discussion, I think. So let me try and uh, explain this. If you take a, a map or a chart on which real geography is depicted, and then uh, on that map or chart, you draw a series of latitudes and longitudes uh, such that when you join them, they bound or enclose a given area. And then in that area that has been so bounded, integrate much of your, of your grand strategy then the area that is bounded is your strategic geography. Now, clearly, the strategic geography of one country won't be the same as that of another. Tonga will not be the same as India. India may not be the same as uh, Russia. Russia may not be the same as New Zealand, and so on and so forth. So the, as a sovereign power, the name that India has chosen to give to its strategic geography is simply the Indo-Pacific. And since India is not the only sovereign power, and there are many, uh, they are free to give the same name to their uh, concepts of whatever the Indo-Pacific is, just like there are many, uh, I suppose, um, Jeff Smiths in the world, and it's nobody's case that every Jeff Smith should be like every other Jeff, uh, Jeff Smith, simply because they share the same name. And yet, when strategic analysts talk about the Indo-Pacific, uh, they get their knickers into a complete knot, trying to figure out why is it that the Indian and the American and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera all of which is a waste of time. In any case, my last comment is that now the uh, Indo-Pacific constructs of uh, France and, and Germany, uh, ASEAN, India, Japan are all uh, 
um, uniform in that they encompass the whole of the Pacific and the whole of the Indian Ocean. Indo-Pacific has nothing to do with India per se. It has to do with the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. So while the, uh, while the conceptualizations of the USA and uh, of Australia currently don't go west of India, uh, nevertheless, there are signs, strong signs of strategic convergence by which is meant not just the not just uh, you know shared uh, norms because uh, shared uh, strategies because those can be can be pretty um, transactional but shared values shared concepts and shared senses of where exactly and how exactly is the uh, world order to be maintained in order that means how are we to maintain a rules based order without which none of all the activities that we have been used to can actually progress sensibly. Last point, the only way that this can be done is by stitching and knitting the region together. Therefore, whether it's Quad or it's IPOI, this obsession with China seems to be a bit childish and it stems from this, from this, from this concept that security and military security are one and the same thing, which is actually far from being true um, military security is just one facet of security, possibly the most important, but I'll stop there. Right, right. Certainly. A pertinent question is the obsession with China really required. Uh, with that, uh, uh, Garima, it's over to you. And we were speaking earlier and, uh, you know, the focus of our conversation of, uh, with you is going to be on the European efforts to engage in the Indo-Pacific and what the future uh, there of India partnering with the EU is going to be? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Karma, for the question. And thank you to the organizers of the Media Rumble and the Konrad Adenauer Foundation. It's a pleasure to be back here, particularly on this panel. Let's start on your question on Europe in the Indo-Pacific. Now, European trajectory of dealing and talking about the Indo-Pacific has been very interesting. Uh, till two years ago, except for France, nobody in Europe wanted to even use the term Indo-Pacific because they associated that with China's anger. And now in the last year and a half, we've seen a spate of national strategies coming out from Germany, the Netherlands, and now the EU, which adopted its strategy last week. And this is, a, this is a, a very important development for those of us who are familiar with European decision-making mechanisms and how long they can take and how sort of vanilla their strategies can be. This, uh, this document contains a lot of interesting nuggets. So you might ask, why is Europe interested in this region, which is geographically you know, far away? It's not uh, you know, like the case of India. And in the opening uh, paragraphs, they, the EU outlines that a majority of its trade goes to the region. It is the largest trade and investment region for Europe. The EU is a large investment and trade partner for a lot of European export-focused economies. What happens in the Indo-Pacific will have a direct impact on European prosperity and by extension, also European security. So they're really understanding that the Indian and Pacific oceans can, are a single integrated strategic space what happens in one part of the Indo-Pacific will impact the other. And Europe, in fact, is not so far away and not isolated from these developments, particularly because the challenges posed by China's rise in the Indo-Pacific are mirrored 
and the challenges posed by China's increasing activities in Europe. So finally, Europeans have a lot to talk to partners in the region. And I find it very interesting that in the strategy, they actually say that um, where they don't agree with China, they will push back. They will work in coalitions, particularly with partners like India, Japan, um, the US. They also mentioned Korea, Vietnam, and others. Uh, they talk about the Indian Ocean as a gateway to the Indo-Pacific, so Europe wanting to do more, take more burden sharing in terms of security even. They even talk about a substantial European presence as a goal that they would like to do in the future. Um, so conversations in short, I mean, we can, we can talk more if you have uh, questions on the European approach, but conversations in European capitals have really changed and really shifted. And a lot of it is rooted, not just in the United States, but number one, understanding that Europe has a stake in the stability of the region. And second, understanding the importance of partners like India. Uh, the Europe-India partnership has really changed, revitalized over the last year or so. And so the European interest in the Indo-Pacific, we were talking about AUKUS, we were talking about troubles in transatlantic ties. It's, it's really be much beyond just what the United States does. They also have their own narrative and their own role to play in the region. Right. Uh, thanks, uh, Garima, for your, for your remarks. It'll be interesting. We will uh, try and dwell on, you know, what do they mean? What does the EU mean by taking on more burden uh, a little later uh, with some follow-up questions? Jeff, to you now. Uh, Beijing, China's uh, already come up now. I think we've mentioned China twice or thrice in this conversation. Uh, their presence is always, always been a common a strategic challenge uh, for all uh, these countries, be it Japan, India, or the US. Your opening remarks. Yeah, I think I'd like to actually piggyback on some of the remarks made by the Vice Admiral on the Indo-Pacific, because this concept has gotten a lot of attention lately. And I think one aspect of it that's maybe underappreciated is the fact that at least in the US, it's really the merging of two parallel concepts that arose and gained popularity around the same time. And as the Vice Admiral pointed out, one of them is a geographic concept. And it was this idea that we should move away from looking at the Indian Ocean and South Asia as one separate and contained region from the Western Pacific and East Asia. And for a variety of reasons, because of globalization, because of China's expanding footprint and interests west, India's expanding footprint and interest east, and a general uh, merging of the two regions, both maritime and overland connectivity, uh, it was increasingly more valuable to look at this as one large interconnected strategic and economic space rather than two um, geographically distinct regions. And that uh, began gaining popularity in the mid 2000s and even more so I think in the 2010s until it eventually became formal policy in places like Australia uh, and the US and elsewhere, uh, Japan as well. Around the same time that we began thinking of this as one super region rather than two distinct regions, uh, we also began constructing uh, what type of vision we wanted to see for that region. 
a more normative set, what we call the rules-based order in some cases. Uh, what was the operating code for this region? Um, and what were the challenges being presented to that status quo? And who was presenting those challenges? Um, and how much were we committed to upholding freedom of navigation and the rules-based order and international law and peaceful dispute settlement and responsible infrastructure and lending practices? And there we also saw this sort of coalescing of concepts, particularly among the Quad countries, India, US, Japan, and Australia, where all four of them were not only merging these two regions, but articulating the same vision for those regions, or at least very similar visions for those regions, and very similar threat assessments for, um, for who, was, who was challenging the rules-based order in those regions. And so I think, um, I think it's important to keep in mind that there is a geographic component and then a, a conceptual sort of strategic component to it that have both progressed um, in parallel. And um, alongside those developments, we've also seen things like the Quad and AUKUS and others that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in, in moving forward. But uh, I think I'll leave my opening comments there. So I take a point from what Jeff said and uh, bring it over to you. Vision for the re region, you know, uh, if you look at US as a superpower, it has a certain vision for the re region. How different or how similar is the European vision for what, what it wants to do, the influence uh, that it wants to have in the Indo-Pacific? I think the European vision is very different from the vision of the United States, all of resident powers in the region, which have frankly a bigger stake and are impacted more by the developments than Europe, which is sort of further off. Um, when you look at European strategies, France is different because France claims that it is an Indo-Pacific power, it has citizens and territories in the region that need to be protected, and therefore France has slightly different vision for the region than the rest of Europe, which is really preoccupied by understanding how the rise of China will shape the Indo-Pacific as China becomes more aggressive, more assertive, as it questions um, the status quo as it challenges the norms in the region, it is understood that regional institutions as they exist are not up to the challenge of keeping that behavior in check. And therefore, what Europe is trying to achieve is a more a multilateral approach of middle powers working together, but also with institutions like ASEAN, because Europe in itself has the EU as an institution sort of sees itself mirrored in the ASEAN. They, they want to work with different partners to make sure that um, the status quo is not challenged or is when it goes unchallenged, it's checked, uh, that rules and norms that guide the region are maintained. So this is the overall approach that Europe has. It is less security focused than others because of course, Europe's interests are primarily economic, but a lot of the areas where Europe talks about do have security implications as well. For example, emerging technologies, um, even climate change, um, trade, or in all of these practices, if you just take trade, unfair trade practices, forced technology transfers, um, state-owned enterprises, subsidies, all of these questions, which are of course China related, 
have an impact on regional safety, regional stability and security. So that is really the approach that Europe is coming from. And it is very different from the approach that say the United States um, takes and that we see in alliances like um, that exist in the region or pacts like AUKUS. Right. So, so Vice Admiral, can, can Europe, uh, you know, not have a more the, the security focus that uh, Garibha talked about uh, when we have a very uh, assertive China, uh, you know, trying to uh, shake the boat, so to say, in the region? Yeah. Um, if you'll permit me, I want to preface my answer with a little comment. You know, we use this word uh, strategic pretty loosely, uh, and strategic is an adjective, and it, it implies that you have a strategy, and a strategy implies that you have some attainment of some goals. So every country has a set of economic goals uh, that it seeks to attain and a set of non-economic goals which it seeks to, seeks to attain, uh, the latter being uh, exemplified by things like, you know, prestige or people-to-people uh, -people contact or cultural connectivity, which are non-geoeconomic in nature. And these, once you have these goals, then you develop strategies in order to attain those goals. And then you put in place some assurance and insurance mechanisms uh, which will either make sure that your strategies that you've formulated are actually capable of being sensibly executed. And if they uh, threaten to fall apart, you need some insurance mechanisms. And those are the instruments of uh, the military and diplomacy, which are the only two instruments of any nation's foreign, power, foreign policy. Now coming to Europe I, and, and security. First, I want to re-emphasize that security is not limited to military security alone. And European security resonates very strongly. European concepts of security resonate very strongly with India, at least, if not with uh, all, the, all the members of the Quad, perhaps less so with uh, the USA, because the USA has this military security sort of uh, uh, primacy. So Europe has been, the European Union has been saying for some years now, not just one year, that it is going to be a serious security player in the Indian Ocean region or in the Indo-Pacific. And in my opinion, uh, we should take them seriously. And the best way to catch an elevator is when it's on the ground floor. It's rather foolish to try and you know, catch it while it's on its ascent. And therefore, the general derision or the general dismissal of dismissiveness of Europe, I think is extremely imprudent, if at all, it continues to be there. The trade factor which Europe emphasizes is identical to the trade factor for India. India has $160 billion worth of trade, $110 billion worth of trade going west to the state of Babel Mandeb, that's 60 billion in exports and 50 billion in imports. And we have $190 billion going to the South China Sea. So trade is, is crucial when that trade is threatened, whether it's threatened by military force or it's threatened by pirates or it's threatened by anybody, we will react. And we expect that that is the norm. Now, the last point is who is challenging the rules-based order? There's no doubt that that is China. And what is the rules-based order? It is actually a series of already established conventions which have been signed and ratified ranging from the IMO, which draws from the UNCLOS, but is not wedded to the UNCLOS. So the International Maritime Organization 
has a whole range, a whole slew of, uh, of instruments which nations, including China, have publicly promised to adhere to. Now for us to go chasing after China with one more piece of paper saying, this one, if you sign, will you promise to be a good boy? I think is, is ludicrous. It is chasing a chimera, in my considered opinion. It only provides um, you know, diplomats with the ability to, 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 to um, mix up, confuse uh, activity with accomplishment. I think it's, 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 it's not required. The thing that is required is what is going on. Europe is in the Indo-Pacific as a, as a serious player. India is a serious player. And France and India, for example, are exemplifying what I just mentioned. I'll stop there. Right. So, so perhaps I can say that Europe wants to be, uh, you know, it aspires to be a, a, a serious player now with a new policy in place. So, Jeff, how is China, uh, uh, you know, going to look at, uh, at this? China looking at uh, Europe's uh, elevated profile in the Indo-Pacific? Yes. Well, I, I would say the elevation of Europe's profile in the Indo-Pacific has been slow. Um, it, it's only now, be, and, and frankly, only among some countries, uh, beginning to make its presence felt. Uh, we have seen recent forays into the South China Sea, for example, uh, from uh, Germany, from the UK, from France. So we have seen elevated naval activity in the Indian Ocean, in the Western Pacific um, in recent years. Uh, certainly on the economic front, uh, Europe has been very, very active for a long time. Uh, France is a resident power in the Indo-Pacific, uh, more so than any other European country, one of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world. Um, but this sort of more proactive diplomatic and military approach particularly on some of the key fault lines, uh, strategic and geopolitical fault lines on, on the Indo-Pacific is a newer phenomenon. Um, the unveiling of Indo-Pacific strategies, um, AUKUS naturally uh, are newer phenomenon. I think we have yet to see how China is going to approach a more active Europe on the Indo-Pacific front. I think it's safe to assume they will pursue a divide and conquer strategy, much as they have in the past, uh, trying to play up divisions among European member states, uh, trying to get sympathizers within Europe to water down resolutions that are at odds with Chinese foreign policy interests, uh, trying to use economic levers, both positive and negative, to uh, induce alignment with Chinese foreign policy priorities. Uh, we do know that uh, in the last few years, with the rise of wolf warrior diplomacy, uh, Chinese officials have grown much more defensive um, and aggrieved, and any statements that are seen as uh, counter to China's interests are much more likely to invoke some, some form of punitive response. Now, the Chinese have been a little more reluctant to overplay their hand with Europe, um, they haven't adopted quite the same bullying tactics that they have toward uh, smaller countries in their periphery. Uh, but if, if they increasingly view Europe as, as being aligned with the Quad or as uh, conflicting with their interests in Taiwan or the South China Sea or elsewhere, 
it's entirely possible that they adopt a more activist and punitive approach. Although, you know, one would hope that uh, they're also learning some lessons from Australia, which is that uh, there can be consequences to pressing too hard and going too far um, and being seen as interfering in Australia's internal affairs and domestic affairs, trying to punish Australia for sovereign policy decisions had, a, had an impact, had consequences. And it's, it's frankly, it's belligerent behavior in general has produced a, 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 a balancing response among countries in its periphery, most notably with Australia and Japan and India and the US, um, but also in, in other countries at a lower level. And I think it's an open question whether the Chinese have internalized uh, the consequences of this wolf warrior diplomacy um, or whether they're going to, for a variety of reasons, uh, continue with this strategy. Um, and it, it remains to be seen, frankly, how big of a role uh, Europe is going to play on some of these strategic fault lines. I, we're still at, a, I, as I said, a very early stage, uh, I think, of, of this new chapter in European engagement with the Indo-Pacific. It's always been there. We know that. It's always been a major economic player. But um, I think there's a greater appetite in Europe to, to do more in a region that is seen as not only increasingly important, but undergoing some profound changes. And so um, we'll have to wait and see. Right, right. Uh, so we, we're just about uh, 30 minutes into the, the webinar. Uh, if you all have any questions, you can put it in the chat box and uh, I will take it for you uh, while we continue to uh, carry this conversation forward. Uh, well, Jeff said that, you know, uh, Europe may have to tread lightly on those fault lines. Will they is a question. The other question is the impact of uh, AUKUS. You know, Lee uh, 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 Paul spoke about it in his opening remarks. What is that going impact going to have? And I'm going to put the same question uh, to Vice Admiral. Um, on the first question, let me also go back to the question you had asked earlier to Jeff about Europe is new in the Indo-Pacific. What can Europe really do, um, you know, given its limited engagement? I have to say that there are two ways of how Europe looks at it. One is working in the Indo-Pacific and the other is working with Indo-Pacific partners. Now, both of them have actually irritated China a lot. And that's, I'm going to come to that in a bit, but what is Europe doing in the Indo-Pacific? I think when it comes to Vice Admiral also said security, not everyone has to do everything. There are other ways of contributing and Europe has been spending and investing a lot of money over the years on things like maritime domain awareness, information sharing, capacity building, there are cybersecurity, programs, there is the sort of maritime security dialogues with partners. Um, of course, on the on the issue of IUU fishing, ocean governance, a lot of these things which we see as um, non-traditional, I mean, Europe has been doing a lot. What it wants to do now is to make sure that these um, investments are meeting Europe's interests as well as those of its key partners in the region. For example, now that there is a dialogue with India, 
And after the strategy, what Europeans would like to do is to understand what India wants, what Japan wants, and see where they can contribute these existing programs. So one has to understand these things fly quite under the radar, but it's not that Europe hasn't done anything in the region. Of course, there's the French um, um, presence in the region, the UK carrier strike group, a Dutch frigate joined it, there's a German frigate coming in the region after a long time. Of course, these, these things are signals, right? They, they are not going to make uh, a, a big difference in the bigger scheme of things, but these are important signals also being sent to China, and Europe is learning from that as well. China rejected the German frigate's uh, request for a port call. This will lead to learnings in Berlin, which wanted to tread very lightly in the Indo-Pacific and not um, take chances with China. But now this behavior, the Chinese behavior, is, will force Berlin to take hard lessons, which frankly, a lot of its partners were saying you should do uh, when you go to the region. So there is, of course, that there is a learning element. But there's also a question of what Europe wants to do with its key Indo-Pacific partners. Work in coalitions, for example, with Japan on the question of supply chain security with India on the Indian Ocean region, also with the United States. The US and Europe have a trade and technology council, which is supposed to deal with many of these questions and their economic and security implications. That brings me to your second question on AUKUS. Now, of course, in terms of optics, it is pretty bad for France. Um, in terms of other European countries are, for the time being, standing up with, in solidarity with France. But there's also an understanding in European capitals that let's not blow this out of proportion. Let's not you know, have it derail the progress we've made on the China front behind the scenes. Uh, the fact that the EU Indo-Pacific strategy said so clearly that the EU is open to working with partners, including, by the way, they mentioned the Quad Working Groups. Now, this is, this is a big deal because by saying quad and the working groups that you're interested, you're taking a very clear position and you're sending very clear signals to China. I, and a lot of people in Europe hope that these advances are hopefully not swept under the rug and that we can um, start a meaningful dialogue with, with the United States, um, both on the China front as well as on the Indo-Pacific front. So, of course, we're hearing a lot of noise and fury right now, but I, I have a feeling that this will not impact a lot of the back channel work that was being done and a lot of other member states which are very interested in working with the Biden administration. Right. Uh, there is a question, uh, Vice Admiral, uh, I think it goes in line with what we are talking about. Uh, Kartike wants to know is if uh, AUKUS has brought forth the importance of uh, nuclear-propelled submarines for the Indo-Pacific region, autonomous systems like unmanned underwater vehicles will carry significant implications for future battle space. Will the regulation of un unmanned systems be another area for international cooperation and development of uh, maritime law governing such systems? Yeah, um, before I co uh, come to the specific question of uh, SSNs and uh, unmanned uh, and autonomous vessels, vehicles. I, I want to uh, amplify some parts of what Garima said. I have no quarrel with what she said, but I wanted to uh, buttress uh, some of her uh, very strong arguments with one or two, perhaps, that might be useful. One is, you know, there's this um, inability, mostly, to differentiate between two words, capacity and capability. Now, Germany may have only one frigate, 
And that's no great capacity. France itself doesn't have any great maritime capacity. European Union, the European Union, Europe, has enormous capability. So capacity is material wherewithal. You don't have a patrol boat, I give you a patrol boat, I've doubled your capacity, but do you know how to run the patrol boat? Do you know how to operate it? Have you got a life cycle costing? Do you have a maintenance cycle? Do you have a training infrastructure? Do you have a legal framework? Yes, 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 yes. Wow, you've got capability. No, 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 no. You've only got a liability. So what does India and European Union have in common? They have this. That is that they are very strong on the capability card. And both of them would be extremely foolish if they were to copy another country that has its strong cards in, or its strong suit as capacity. So this is the first point I wanted to make and therefore European uh, endeavor in the security realm of the, even in the military or hard security realm ought not to be considered solely upon the principle of capacity. It should be capability driven as well. Then we come to this business of AUKUS. Look, uh, all these, the three countries involved are treaty alliance partners with each other. So uh, there is no question of uh, AUKUS upsetting anything per se over the long run. France is furious. Of course it's furious. But as Garima said, uh, France's fury will abate in the face of the practical aspects of the long term. Remember that in the Indian Ocean and in the Indo-Pacific and in the Pacific Ocean, all the major players are players of the long, they're, 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 they're long run players. They're not, they're not um, uh, you know, knee jerk reaction players. So that I think is a really important thing. Berlin and the lessons learned by Berlin, I hope will be sincere and I hope will be uh, driven home, not because of the uh, refusal of uh, the German frigate to arrive, to enter, make a port call in China, but Germany issued the light linian, okay? Just before the, uh, before the uh, European Union um, strategy document came out a few, a few days ago, Germany was relying upon the light linian, which is the guidelines. Now, in those light linian, one factor was who are our chosen partners or preferred partners? And Germany's preferred partner for nuclear non-proliferation was China. And I wanted to ask my German friends, what have you been smoking? And whatever it is, it's bad stuff. Go and get some proper thing. China? Now I'll come to the issue of what, uh, what happens with India. Look, none of these countries that are involved thus far are facing China on a battlefield where people are dying, only India. So nobody can tell me that Australia is or isn't, uh, you know, uh, pushing back or is or China is or isn't recognizing the pushback, all of which is correct. But the military pushback from India is what, is, uh, is what needs to be emphasized and China is rocking back on its strategic heels, not its tactical heels, but its strategic heels, simply because of the extraordinarily strong uh, pushback from India, extraordinarily from the uh, point of view of other parts. Finally, I'll come to this business of, um, of SSNs. Look, AUKUS may well generate uh, Australian nuclear propulsion 
underwater propulsion capacities and capabilities, it will take between 10 and 20 years for this to happen. Nothing short of 10, probably more towards 20. So nothing is going to happen in the immediate with regard to SSNs. The, the, the requirement to run both kinds of propulsive submarines, that is SSKs, which is diesel electric submarines, and SSNs, which are nuclear propelled submarines, is independent of one another. Both are, the United States has a policy to only produce one, but as it approaches littoral spaces, it is realizing that it needs some other categories of capability of capacity as well. Unmanned craft, will this be an area of great uh, collaboration? I certainly hope so. It is, otherwise it's going to be a mess. Let me give you one last example, Karma. Let's say you're an Indian fisherman and you've moved and many of our fishermen in India are moving in from the Himalayas in the fishing season, which is the non-agricultural season back home. Now that fishing, the fisherman is throwing a cast net. The cast net happens to snag an underwater, uh, unmanned underwater vehicle, small. What, what happens? Has he committed a crime? Is there a law? Which law? And if it is not an Indian, UUV, it's somebody else's. Has he committed an international crime? Is there any, any law at all? Should there be a law? What law should there be? Yes, there is certainly a huge, huge scope, huge space for collaboration, for cooperation amongst like-minded people. The whole business of law and lawfare is so important right now that no matter how much I emphasize or gesticulate, it will do it a little uh, justice. So I hope that answers those questions. Thank you very much. Right. That those answers the questions and a lot more, uh, Vice Admiral Star. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Jeff, I come to you. I see no more questions. Uh, uh, so one last question to you, uh, concluding question to you on the impact of, uh, of this and how it's being looked at right now uh, by other countries. Well, like many others, um, I was caught by surprise uh, by the AUKUS announcement. It's, uh, I suppose, a credit to the three governments involved that they were able to keep such a, a big development, consequential development secret for so long. It does appear to have been negotiated uh, rather quickly in the last few months. Um, I'm not going to sort of be the one to defend AUKUS against uh, criticisms uh, from the French. Uh, I think everyone here understands why they are upset. Um, I think uh, everyone here in the US would like to sort of smooth over any differences in the relationship. Um, there were, you know, there's some reporting that uh, the Australians had, had reassured us that, that they were the ones notifying the French of this new development and the French would be well aware and they wouldn't be caught by surprise. Uh, I suppose, you know, political journalists can sort out the details in the aftermath. Uh, what I would say is, you know, it does appear there were, this was a case of both uh, the French submarine program being over cost and running over time, but also a fundamental change to Australia's security environment and its threat assessments, uh, you know, just over the last, last few years. And you know, when a country is facing a new and, and very serious national security threat, sometimes there have to be changes made to strategic planning. 
Um, and when you combine that with uh, common changes to the outlooks of, of the United States and the UK, which has also undergone some major shifts uh, in its foreign policy and its strategic outlook, you know, sometimes these uh, compromises have to be made and, and plans have to be changed in, in the best interest of, of the country and the people. And there are going to be uh, folks that are unhappy with that for entirely legitimate and justified reasons. Um, so I think it's incumbent now on, on, you know, the U.S. and Australia, the U.K., India and others to continue to encourage uh, France to remain engaged in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, to try to mitigate any damage done by the AUKUS agreement, um, but to recognize that there's a reason uh, these three countries have formed a new strategic partnership and to reflect on why that might be. Um, and I think we'll leave it at that for now. Right. Thank you, Jeff, uh, and to my very learned panel. Thank you all so much for those uh, insights. The man from the Himalayas has learned much, uh, you know, uh, from, from all of you. I'd like to end this uh, with a quote. I guess uh, Indo-Pacific is a region where even the best of the mystics find hard to predict. So I'll end uh, this session with a small quote from uh, Kung Fu Panda. And I think it's very apt. The learned turtle Ugwe says, uh, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery, today is a present. So may the best region or the best country with the best today win this. Thank you. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.